From Brown Cow Studios in Galton Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. This week we're joined by one of the youngest state senators in office right now, Democratic Representative Will Haskell. Will was elected as the state senator for the 26th District of Connecticut when he was only 22 years old, and now he's written a book about the experience. It's called 100,000 First Bosses, My Unlikely Path as a 22-Year-Old Lawmaker. We'll talk about the book, his path to the state senate, and his views on national politics. It's Wednesday, February 16th, 2022, and this is News Nerds. Will Haskell is a Democratic state senator representing Connecticut's 26th district. He was elected to represent the district at age 22, defeating an incumbent Republican. His new book is called 100,000 First Bosses, My Unlikely Path as a 22-Year-Old Lawmaker. Senator Will Haskell, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you, Ezra. So tell me uh, about how you grew up in Connecticut and what your life as a young child, well, you're still very young, but when you were younger was like? Sure. I grew up like a lot of people. Um, I'm embarrassed to say, not necessarily knowing that I had a state senator, certainly not knowing what his or her or her name was. Um, I became interested in state politics because like a lot of people, I woke up after Donald Trump's election and suddenly felt as though our country was headed down the wrong path. I think like a lot of young people who grew up during the era of um, President Obama, we sort of had this um, this feeling of progressive inevitability that that we were moving in the right direction. And yeah, we had really bitter and important fights as to the speed of that progress, but at least at least the arc was bending towards justice. And now all of a sudden, with President Trump's election, it just felt like a punch in the gut. Our, our country had decided to elect somebody who actually was, you know, promising to bring us backwards. His, his campaign slogan was making America great again. So I was always interested in politics. Um, I had paid a lot more of attention like most people to national politics. And then after President Trump's election, I decided to take a little bit of a closer look at who was representing me here in Connecticut. So what motivated you to seek a term as a state senator specifically? Well, the first step in my journey to running for office was looking at town hall. I wanted to learn about the folks who represented me on the school board, on the board of selectmen, on the board of finance, and by and large in my hometown, I thought they were doing a good job. And then I moved up the ladder and I looked at my state representative. I actually had coffee with him and it was somebody who was fighting for environmental justice, somebody who showed up to the Capitol every day to make sure that healthcare was more affordable, that we were investing in renewable energy. And I thought, okay, this guy's awesome. I'm so glad that he's my voice in the Senate. And then I got to my state senator. And it was somebody who had voted against paid family and medical leave, which was really important for me as somebody whose mom had to go back to work just two weeks after I was born. That's true of one in four American mothers, but it shouldn't be. It was somebody who said that we'd gone too far in regulating guns when I and everybody in my community seemed to agree that we hadn't gone far enough. I remember what it was like to walk around my high school hallway on the the horrible morning of the Sandy Hook tragedy, which was really just around the corner from our community. And uh, most interestingly, it was somebody who had been in office for longer than I'd been alive. And even if your listeners disagree with everything else I say on this call today, I think we can probably all agree that it's important for incumbents who have been in office for a long time to be challenged. 
Um, it's important for every incumbent to, uh, to have to go out to their community, to hold town hall meetings, to knock on doors, to get feedback on their voting record. And when I found out that not only had she been in office for such a long time, but that nobody else was running against her, I decided to throw my hat in the ring. I knew that winning probably wasn't, you know, probable, but it was possible. And more importantly, it was important to the democratic process to hold her feet to the fire a little bit and to talk about her voting record. So I hired my college roommate to be my campaign manager. And the day after graduation, we set up bunk beds in a, the tiny apartment that we could afford in Fairfield County and started knocking on doors. Wait, tell me more about that. You write in the book about this, uh, how you hired a campaign manager and a treasurer for your campaign, even as this was your first job ever. You came straight out of college and this was your first job, knocking on doors, trying to get elected as a state senator uh, who was running against an incumbent Republican uh, in, a, in a, a district that historically had uh, Republicans in office. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So the district hadn't been held by a Democrat since the 1970s. And people laughed at first when I said that I was running. And it was because I was 22 and it was because I looked 12 and my treasurer was my girlfriend's mom and my campaign manager was my roommate. And a big part of this book, frankly, um, it's not a long stump speech. I've, I've read a lot of politicians' books and sometimes they're long campaign manifestos and those aren't fun to read and I can't imagine they're fun to write. What this book is, is a, a very honest peek behind the scenes at, at the good and the bad and the ugly and sometimes the funny of running for office. Um, I talk about you know filling our offices with beanbag chairs and filling those beanbag chairs with high school interns. I talk about what it feels like to have a focus group pick you apart for everything from you know what you're saying to what you're wearing to the size of your earlobes. Um, I talk about what it feels like to earn the endorsement of President Obama and then to get a call on election night from an opponent who you never ever imagined uh, would concede the race. Uh, I guess overall, I, I hope that people pick up this book and decide, hey, I could do this. I could run for office because you're right. This was my first job out of college. That's why it's called 100,000 First Bosses. Every day felt like a job interview. Every moment felt like a job interview. And that stress only increased when I was elected trying to please my first bosses. Everybody wants to take, make their first boss happy, right? You want to show that they've taken a chance on you and that, uh, that, that they made a good decision. Well, I wanted to make 100,000 people happy. And it wasn't always easy, and I certainly didn't always succeed, but I want to peel back the curtain so that other people can do more and do better and launch their own journey towards public service. Let's get to your book. Uh, you write in the book, for months, members of my community had doubted if I was really ready to be a state senator. After all, I'd never had a real job before. I was untested and to some unelectable. Sometimes those concerns were whispered and other times they were laid out in the opinion section of the local paper. Most of the time, people's skepticism paled in comparison to the doubt I had in myself. People may argue this, but you'd think that there'd be more people who, especially younger people um, in office because they're the ones that are gonna be dealing with uh, issues that older representatives are voting on, like student loan forgiveness and infrastructure and the climate. So that it's really going to affect your generation the most. I couldn't agree more. And I, I couldn't say it better. You know, it, it's honestly terrifying, whether you go to your local town hall or your state capitol, 
or the Congress of the United States. You find policymakers sitting around and deciding what the next 20, 50, 100 years of American life will look like. And by and large, they're doing so without any stakeholders in that future. Um, our generation doesn't have all the answers, but young people have a really important perspective. We know what it's like to hear a loud noise in the hallway and worry about where we would hide in the event of the next school shooting. We know how hard it is to try and afford a degree in the 21st century. We know what it's like to read about climate change and think, oh, this isn't just an academic problem. This is, gonna, this is going to pose a, a, an existential threat to my ability to lead up a happy and, and healthy life. All that to say that there's this promise of representational democracy, and it's a promise that is essentially gone unfulfilled. And it's because there aren't enough women in office and there aren't enough people of color in office, but there aren't nearly, aren't nearly enough young people at the table where decisions are made. And that's a part of why I ran. And it's a part of why we got a whole bunch of young people to volunteer for our campaign and to vote on election day. And it's a part of why I wrote this book, because I hope people pick it up and think, oh, Will's well, it's not actually all that special. Um, I could do that job. I, I, you know, I, I, I could roll up my sleeves and listen during public hearings and cast a pretty informed vote by the time a bill arrived in the Senate. So whether they decide to run for the state Senate or their local school board or, or Congress, I hope other young people pick up the book and decide, yeah, I could do this. So what is the process of, uh, of being elected as a state senator? Um, people may think that you know, running for state senate isn't as big as running for, uh, you know, senator or house of represent a place in the house of representatives, like in Washington. But it's still, you've you described this process in the book, and it does not sound easy for anybody of any age to do. Yeah, um, no, it, it, it's not an easy process, but it, it's important that it's hard. It should be hard. You should have to knock on 4,000 doors as we did. You should have to have 142 living room conversations, lots of town hall meetings. You, you become a better candidate throughout that process. And, and I'll tell you, just in one, one facet of running for office is going out and knocking on doors. And some people think that this is an outdated campaign strategy. Maybe they're right. President of Biden's campaign had to fold up their door knocking strategy, and yet he was elected as president of the United States with more votes than any other candidate in history. So it's entirely possible that, that voting, uh, door knocking is a thing of the past. But I still believe in it, and here's why. It's your last opportunity to learn something about the community that you're hoping to represent. You could put up a billboard or a Facebook ad, but that doesn't tell you, the candidate, anything about the folks that you're, that you're trying to speak on behalf of in government. When you go out door knocking, maybe you tell them about your platform, you introduce yourself, but I try to spend most of my time asking what keeps them up at night, how the government could better serve them. I ask every, every single voter at the doors the same question. What's the most important issue for you? And sometimes I would hear about the pothole at the end of their driveway, or I would hear about the, their son's kindergarten teacher who they didn't like. And frankly, that, that's not really the purview of state government. And then sometimes I'd hear about what the president of the United States was doing or what he was tweeting. And that's not really the purview of state government either. But a lot of the time I found little ways that the state could step up and, and touch their lives for the better. And a lot of those ideas that I learned on front doors became bills and a lot of those bills became laws. So door knocking is not just beneficial to get your name out there as the candidate. And yeah, it's grueling. And if you live in a place like I live with two or four acre zoning, you're spending a lot of time just walking down long driveways or getting chased down those driveways by dogs. But there's a real benefit because it makes you a better candidate and ultimately makes you a better representative. So you had to debate 
the incumbent politicians and other politicians that were running for the same office as you. And uh, that must have been pretty nerve wracking. Tell me about that. Well, I was terrified for the debates because I don't know, I, I wasn't in the debate club in high school or, or college or anything. I'd never done anything like this before. I spent a lot of time preparing, sitting down with, with Jack, who you know had been my college roommate and was now my campaign manager. And we would we'd talk through all these issues. But here's the reality. Um, there's usually about four or five issues that are on the minds of voters, on the minds of constituents, and therefore on the minds of elected officials. So I had to learn a lot really quickly about transportation politics. I had to learn a lot about um, education issues and public health issues. But it's not as though, how to say this, I think that a lot of members of the public have a, a misconception about who elected officials are. There's some I, I, in, in, in the category you know, into which I fell for a long time, who deify them, who grew up with the Aaron Sorkin belief that, they, that elected officials have to juggle multiple games of chess and also an international crisis at the same time. And then there's probably far more who deify, I'm sorry, who vilify them, who think that you know, Nancy Pelosi eats children for breakfast every day. And the truth is elected officials are somewhere in between, by and large, certainly on the state level, they're regular people. Who, are, who care deeply about four or five issues and who do their best to, to learn about a whole host of other issues. But whether it's, it's at the debates or whether it's when you get up to the, to the state capitol, you're not expected to know everything about every issue. You might be the expert on public transit, but you're gonna be the neophyte on Medicaid. You might know everything there is to know about renewable energy, but you might uh, not know anything about you know, uh, immunization status in, in public schools. So you, you always have to be ready to listen and to learn. And that's the number one uh, you know, skill, I think, that's required in this job. Another passage from your book um, is, it's a, it's a message that, that tells readers that you're not gonna run again in 2022 um, in November this year. You say, as I write this, I don't plan to run for re-election again in 2022. I've learned so much in this job, and I think I've helped to bring a slightly better future for our state. But after two terms, I'm ready to say goodbye to my 100,000 first bosses. So explain this decision to me and why you're not going to um, seek another term in the state Senate. Yeah, it's kind of a paradox of the book, right? I wrote a book to beg other people to run for office, and in the final chapter, they learned that, that I've decided to step aside. But I'll tell you why, um, why I don't think that's inconsistent. I ran because I thought it was time for a change. I think that government works best when new voices and different perspectives get to enter the caucus room or the committee hearing or the Senate floor. And I'm really proud of the work that I was able to do. And now in the state of Connecticut, thousands of students are able to go to community college for free because of a, a program that I helped to pass. Starting this month in Connecticut, uh, new parents can spend the time that they need with their newborns um, without losing a paycheck because we now have the strongest, most inclusive, most generous paid leave policy in the country. So I'm really proud of the work that's been done. But at the same time, um, I know that whoever is, is going to fill my seat next is sure to bring a whole bunch of new ideas. And let's be honest, probably a whole bunch of better ideas. So I think the change in government is healthy. And of course, I'm really sad to step away from the job that I love, but I also I think it's going to be a great thing for Connecticut. What do you picture yourself doing next as still you're, you're still in your twenties and you still have so much of your life to live and you've already been a state Senator. What's next for you? 
Yeah, well, thanks for asking. I bristle a little bit when people say retirement because I'm, I'm 25. I'm not moving to Florida and, and uh, you know, retiring on the beach. Uh, I am going to go to law school. I'm going to uh, live uh, closer to my fiance, which I'm really excited about. We've been long distance for a long time. Um, and after that, I, I don't know. I, I am leaving politics, but I'm not leaving public service. Over the course of my time in office, I've gotten to know a lot of people who do really interesting work to make their community better. And only some of them decide to do that by running for office. There's, a, there's so many other roles um, where you can still work with people and have that same level of satisfaction at the end of the day. So I, I wish I could give you a more specific answer. You know, I'm, I'm interested in, in the work of public defenders. That's something I'm taking a look at. But let me go to law school and maybe get back to you. I, I'm going to zoom out kind of more nationally now. And it must have been really hard being in office when there's a nationwide pandemic. As a state senator, even in even just a, just a state senator in Connecticut, I know that state senators here in Montana had a, a hard time agreeing on different issues and uh, passing different bills that might conflict with their their points of view. What what was that like debating with other people and trying to pass legislation that will help to end the pandemic? Well, the pandemic's been terrible. It, it's robbed us of our ability to meet together as a Senate. And so much of the work that happens happens in the hallway before a vote or after a vote where you get to know each other personally, shaking hands. And anyways, I, I, I miss that tremendously. And, and it's been a challenge to serve on a remote basis because in Hartford, if you fight like hell in a committee hearing, you can at least step outside and, and, and make up. When you press that red end button, you're just both going to bed angry that night. Let me tell you, though, the, the, the positive side of this. The other theme of the book is optimism. So I, I try to end on an optimistic note with my answers. Um, a part of your job in the state Senate is to write and pass laws, to debate amendments, to, to you know, push your priorities all the way to the governor's desk and then into state statute. But an equally important part of your job is to be an advocate for your constituents within the state bureaucracy. When somebody picks up the phone because they can't reach the right person at the DMV, because they can't get on a phone call with their loved one who's incarcerated because they can't get a fishing license from the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Whatever it is, whoever that person is, whoever, whatever their politics happen to be, it's your job to step up and help them. And I represent a district of about 100,000 people, and I usually hear from a few thousand of them. Well, the pandemic changed that dynamic entirely. All of a sudden, more people than ever before needed help from their government. They needed masks and plexiglass and PPE. They needed um, unemployment assistance. They needed COVID-19 tests. And eventually they needed vaccine appointments. Um, all that to say that my team and I heard from tens of thousands of people that we represent, folks who had never contacted their state senator before, probably a lot of people like me who didn't necessarily know that they had a state senator and certainly didn't know my name. And many of them probably uh, were members of the other political party. But we never asked because it didn't matter. They needed help and a really rewarding part of this job and, and a rewarding part of serving during such a, a historic and unexpected public health crisis and the worst recession, recession since the Great Depression has been to step up and, and, and get to be that advocate within the state government on behalf of others. I'm just curious, we've been hearing about um, how mass mandates and some restrictions have been lifted up there in the uh, in the East Coast, uh, up there 
in Connecticut where you are a state senator. Uh, what does the Omicron wave look like right now in Connecticut? Our positivity rate today is hovering around 5%. Our hospitalization rates are really low, but it's, there's huge variability within Connecticut's 169 towns. So my district is among the most vaccinated in the state. You drive about an hour east and you're reaching communities that um, have much lower vaccination rates. So we're actually voting next week on whether or not to continue uh, a mask mandate across the state. I'll be voting to put that decision into the hands of local superintendents. I think that um, just as on a snow day, Governor Levant doesn't get to you know, close every school in Connecticut, but rather superintendents have to look at the conditions of the road in their community and decide what's safe. I think that that's, uh, that's where we're headed with, in Connecticut with regard to mask mandates and the Omicron variant. What do you think about Joe Biden's uh, presidency so far? It's now we're over uh, a year, almost a year and one month into his presidency. Uh, he made some pretty big promises at the beginning of, of his presidency and his campaign. And some of those uh, haven't been passed yet, whether it's because um, the Senate can't pass them or because um, he just hasn't prioritized that enough. What are, what, is, uh, what are your opinions on his presidency so far? I should say I'm a, I'm a fan of President Biden, and I don't envy him having to negotiate with somebody like Mitch McConnell, who from the onset said that his goal was to make sure the Biden administration did not get to ad advance its agendas. I don't know how, how you negotiate with somebody like that. Let me just focus my answer on transportation, because I, I serve as the Senate chairman of the Transportation Committee and spend about 80 to 85 percent of my time working on that issue. What President Biden's managed to accomplish in terms of sending $5.4 billion to Connecticut um, is going to create some transformative, uh, it's, it's going to allow for transformative investments in our public transit system. I, I represent a portion of Connecticut that's really close to New York City. It's right along the busiest commuter line in the whole country, 40 million rides a year on Metro North. And that train is slower today than it was 50 years ago. Thanks to President Biden's investment, we're going to be able to do big things like replacing bridges that date back to the McKinley administration that slow those trains down, and a whole bunch of small things like fixing drainage spots and replacing rail ties that allow for marginal speed increases. So, um, you know, we could look big picture. What he's doing is, is bringing our infrastructure into the 21st century, but I can tell you firsthand here in Connecticut, every day it's amazing to me, programs that we've long been unable to fund are now flush with federal assistance. and um, and what does that actually mean for people? It means they can cross a bridge without worrying it's going to collapse, as we recently saw in Pittsburgh. Or for the commuters who are on the train every day, it means they get home just a little bit faster to tuck their kids into bed or to have dinner with their family. And, um, and that's really meaningful. And I'll just I'll, I'll end by saying that I think President Biden and specifically Secretary Buttigieg have done a great job of recognizing that we can't be serious about addressing climate change until we address the transportation sector. In Connecticut, 38% of carbon emissions come from the transportation sector. So that's why we're seeing a huge push on the federal and on the state level to invest in uh, electrifying our network, making sure that there are charging stations, making sure that electric vehicles are more affordable, making sure that we're investing in public transit and moving people away from driving those internal combustion engines. All of that push is coming from the federal government, and it's been really exciting to partner on the state level with those initiatives. Uh, he's up for a re-election, and frankly, he's quite old. Uh, who would you like? <laughs> who would you like to see run? Would you like to see him run again, or would you like to see a new um, a new Democrat 
take his place uh, and possibly challenge Trump, who seems to be looking to run again? You know, it's it's usually not the purview of a state senator to say whether it, uh, the most powerful person, the leader of the free world, should run for re-election. But here's here's what I'll say, and, and here's frankly what I sketch out in the book. I think that the, that the Democratic Party needs to do a better job of a empowering younger candidates, but b and b is as important talking to young voters instead of just talking about them. How many politicians go to a classroom and participate in a photo op, but they don't ever ask those students what issues matter most to them. They don't empower those students by asking them to spearhead a student loan forgiveness proposal. Uh, they, don't, they don't ever you know, speak on behalf of their younger constituents. And most politicians are savvy. Democrats and Republicans know that typically who votes in, in down ballot races, well, who votes period, it's older Americans. So politicians regularly go to senior centers and they make sure that those constituents feel heard, but we don't see that same level of interaction among young people. That's starting to change. And it's because young people are starting to show up more. They're not just showing up at, <laughs> at the ballot, they're showing up on the ballot. And, um, I, I guess what I would ask in anyone who's running for any office, I guess, I, and in my view, that includes President of the United States, let's make sure that young voters um, feel included and feel heard. And sometimes that means nominating somebody who's young, who Gen Z can, can recognize themselves and their values in. And sometimes it just means making sure that politicians who happen to be older are, are making room in their cabinet, making room... Um, uh, in, in, in their hearts for the things that young voters care most about. Well, Will Haskell, thank you so much. And we'll see if Biden opens a TikTok account and becomes a teen influencer now. Yeah, we, we will see. And thank you so much for, uh, for helping to spread the word about this book. It's been a pleasure talking with you. for this week's episode of News Nerds. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're there, please subscribe to the podcast. While you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Another way to listen is by listening every other week on Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KJVM Community Radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you are not in the Gallatin Valley area, go to KJVM's website, kgvm.org, to listen on their live stream. So I was on the ski lift the other day because it is a big part of uh, Montana and the recreation in the winter, but the people that you meet on the ski lift, uh, you know, I didn't really have a good experience the last time I met a conspiracy theorist and, and I, I, I met two, uh, uh, probably 20 year old, um, men who were drinking white claw on the way up. So, fun times. Well, we'll see you next week with more fun times from News Nerds. 
We'll be back with author Joshua Prager. Mm-hmm.